first Bible reading is chapter 40 of Job. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. And then I myself will admit to you that, you are, that your own right hand can save you. Look at Behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The hills bring in their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by this stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes, or trap it and pierce its nose? Oh, that's it. <laughs> you nearly got 41 as well. <laughs> okay, the second reading is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body 
through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of God. Gird up thy loins now like a man. I'll demand of thee and declare thou unto me. It's the King James Version of Job 40 verse 7 which we read as, brace yourself like a man. Or another translation might be, you can't handle the truth. This is a moment that's fairly intense for Job. He's having a conversation with God, and out of the storm, God speaks to him and says, gird up your loins. This is that moment where when you've got, a, or you don't wear trousers, but you've got a long robe and you pull it up and you wrap it around and you prepare yourself for battle. You brace yourself. You prepare to go and you bring your best strength to the challenge before you. Now Job's a story you might be familiar with, you might not, but it comes in the context of a man who is, he is suffering and often, Job's a book about suffering, well there is a lot of suffering in Job, but this is a man who is wrestling to understand his suffering in the context of a God that he knows is sovereign and a God that he knows is good. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to figure out how does my world and your world, God, work together? Because I'm having some trouble and I've got to tell you, God, if I was to pull you into one of our courtrooms right now, I think you'd be find, found wanting. I may not be right, but I do hear a tone in God. Though his voice is stern, and his challenge is immense, and he tells Job to brace yourself, I don't hear condemnation from God. I hear the voice of a father, the voice of an older man, putting his arm around another and saying, pump the brakes, slow down, there's some perspective you need right now, you're about to make some big mistakes. Just slow down, let me show you. What is great about this story of Job and God and why I think it will help us is God now points out to him there's some real profound differences between you and I, Job. And I picked this passage because I love as God speaks and he refers to behemoth. Now, no one really knows what this animal is and no one needs to know what it is except that it's bigger and badder than all the other ones on the planet. Maybe it's an ancient rhinoceros. Who knows? doesn't matter. But what God's saying is, when you look at behemoth, you see quads, you see a strong tummy, you see this huge hulking animal. That's like a puppy to me. The lilies of the field and the things like that, it, it plays in those. And I've fed it grass and I can lead it by the nose. It's not a big deal. The same goes for the sea monster Leviathan. Not a big deal. Big deal to you, big deal to the ocean, little deal to me. The stars in space, the starry host, amazing. I chucked them up there. Like how you put fairy lights up. That's how it is for me. I have heavenly storehouses with snow. I control all of these things. You know, at no point does God say, Job, you're nothing. 
He just says, Job, you need to get some perspective and understand all that I am. Kid, we come from different worlds. I'm creator and your creature. I'm heavenly, heavenly, divine and eternal, and well, you're going to brace yourself like a man. The point is, we come from two very different spaces, and that's where we start this morning, but not where we finish, because Job has some other advice, I think, that will help us as we set out on our journey together. Uh, You'll see on the next screen a little bit from Job 42 and Job 19. These are two words I want to give you, humility and hope. Sometimes as humans, we fear humility because we think humility will lead to humiliation, that I'll be crushed and made lesser. But I don't think that's what God does with Job. I think what God does with Job in this perspective giving is he says, Job, brace yourself like a man because you're a splendorous man I've made and now realize how much more I am. It's not a crushing of Job. It's a you'll stand in awe and humility as you see all that I am. Job rejoices in this and one stage he says, Hop on my mouth. I've gone too far. He, he offers back to God, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Sometimes in uh, our reluctance to be humbled, we want to make God little. One will say to us as well, you might just need to remember I'm just a little bigger than your brain can handle. I'm very, very big. You're wonderfully created, but I'm God. Just remember, just remember, behemoth is my pet, my puppy. So Job says, wow, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. And so we get our first lesson this morning of humility before God is a wonderful thing, but it's not humiliation. Humility is the thing that makes you smile because it leads to the, wow, Lord, you're amazing. Not, I suck humility before God. But God, uh, as he and Job encounter one another, Job gives us another word that will help us, and that word is hope. Hope. Now, it's a wonderful hope because it's a hope in God. Sometimes a human hope can be actually hubris, where, no, no, if I just believe in myself, I'm that damn good that I can make this happen, and it moves into a space of delusion. That's not what Job's talking about. In Job 19, one of my favorite verses, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, my Rescuer, my Vindicator lives, and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. Job speaks way better than he knows. Speaking prophetically, and he's saying, look, in all of this chaos that I endure, this suffering and this heartbreak that I endure, this gap and distance I feel from God, I believe that He, my Redeemer, will stand on this earth. And when He stands on the earth, He'll vindicate me, my lot will be better, and He will be my rescuer. You see, every time the Lord stands on the earth, things get better. Two words, humility and hope, and they're going to be a real help to us as we embark upon this new series. Today, we start a series called Finding Hope. And in this series, we want to look at what I would prefer to call the return of Jesus. Often we call it the second coming of Jesus. There's problems with using that phrasing because Jesus has come a few times. But the return of Jesus, and I'll say more of that as we go, there's a return of Jesus that is anticipated in the future where he will finally stand on the earth. And that's where we want to go because that is the Christian hope. 
Just like Job, we're looking for this time where it will all make sense when he returns. And man, has much been said, written, and Hollywooded about this idea of the return of Jesus. And some of it's sensational, and some of it's scary, and some of it's traumatic, and some of it's maybe suffering from some inaccuracies. It's complicated, right? Because you, like Job, go, I'll put my mouth over my, my hand over my mouth and say, oh, beyond my pay grade, this is tricky stuff. So you get the other result. We say nothing about it. Uh, we've been reflecting, I spoke to 8 o'clock and I'll speak to you now and I'll speak to 6 tonight. I think about different generations and how familiar the prayer, come Lord Jesus, come is. And I suspect the greyer your hair is, the more familiar that prayer is for you. I wonder if sometimes when it comes to the return of Jesus, we either go into this place of wild speculation and things get really complicated or we say nothing at all. And in saying nothing at all, we live for today. And in living for, that, for today and nothing more, we miss out on a major, major part of the Christian hope and a major, major part of the movements of God and the promises of God. And an air of desperation creeps in as we try and create a utopia today and make everything work. Rather than remember with Job, ah, it'll work when he stands on the earth. So that's where we're going in this series, to understand what we can of the return of Jesus, to find hope in him. Now, this series, uh, I'm really hoping that you can participate as much as possible. There's a QR code on the screen. I'll put that all on all the slides throughout the next four weeks. And in week five, whatever questions we've accumulated, we'll see what we can do to try and address some of those with humility and hope. Some things, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and go, well, I don't know. Ask your Messiah. He'll let you know in time. And some things we might be able to explain. Now, I need to also let you know this is a doctrinal series. Wasn't it wonderful to go through something like Galatians and be able to go verse by verse by verse by verse? Sometimes we're going to do that. Sometimes we're not. Today, we're not. Today, I've got my roller out, not even broad brush strokes. I'm using a roller today. We're going to visit different parts of the Scripture and try and build an overall picture of what has God told us about the return of Jesus and uh, His final coming to us. So it's a little bit different to what we've been doing for the last few weeks. So let me give you something, because I just vomited tons at you. Let me give you something to take home, if nothing else. Here's the big idea. Jesus is the one hope for everyone and everything. Now, I'm really hoping that that didn't blow anyone's mind. I'm really hoping you went, wow, I came in for this second coming series and the best you've got for me is Jesus is the one hope for everyone and everything. And my answer would be, amen, sir, yes. I don't plan to blow your mind at all. I want to remind you of the good, good gospel. The good, good gospel, grace has brought you safe thus far and grace will bring you home. The good, good gospel will always be your assurance at every point as you journey with God. So today, nothing new. Jesus is the only hope for everyone and everything. And at the same time, I hope to lift your vision in this series, as mine has been lifted, of just what that means. Beyond Jesus rescued me, but Jesus is the only hope for everyone and everything. Because the enormity of what Jesus has achieved comes to us in our second reading, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. 
For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus, his son. This verse on its own blows my mind. Often I use this verse when I maybe have to do a talk or something at Christmas time. We're like, what's the big deal about Jesus coming? Well, there's another part of the Bible, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has this vision of God and like the literal, not the train of his robe, but like the hemming on the robe can't fit in the enormous glorious temple. Too big. And uh, his voice shakes the doorposts and everything. There's smoke and stuff. And they don't just have regular angels. They have seraphim, which are six-winged angels, flapping with the middle wings, covering their eyes with these wings and covering their feet with their bottom wings because God is too glorious for even a heavenly angel to be in the presence of. And Isaiah calls out, Oh, I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm like the one ring returned to the fires of Mordor, the one that made me have come back and I melt in his presence. I can't be too much. Well, that same God, the one who said to Job, Behemoth is my puppy, lay in a manger as a baby. God was pleased for his fullness to dwell in Jesus. What I want to do with you over this morning just give you a little bit of time with me to see the enormity of what happens every time Jesus stands on the earth. In this series, I can't tell you anything about when he will return. Not a thing. I'll simply cover my mouth and say, things too wonderful for me to understand. But I do hope over the next few weeks that we might learn a lot about what to expect with the return of Jesus and a whole heap about why it matters why it matters that the Lord, our Redeemer, will stand on the dust of the earth again. And so let me show you big roller strokes of what I understand of Jesus standing on the dust of the earth. Behold the Jesus map. Uh, now, hopefully you don't see that and go, what on earth? Because uh, they're going to break it up into bits for you, but this is going to be a little bit of our map of where we're going over the next few weeks. And this will keep you safe when you find yourself in the back blocks of Revelation or some crazy apocalyptic book and you're like, how does it all work? You'll remember the good, good gospel. Jesus is the hope for everything. I can see you all looking at it, taking it in. Want me to explain my work? You want to go? All right, well, brace yourself like a man. And let's do this together. All right, the first section. This is uh, where we, we encounter God, the God of creation, the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, the one who had to explain to Job, hey, we're so different, you and I. I'm the heavenly dweller. You are the earthly dweller. I am God and creator. You are a creature. I am spiritual. You are fleshly. I'm eternal. This one hurts your head. Does it not hurt your head to think of a space where stopwatches don't work, where time, there's, time had to be invented, created? <sighs> Huge. I'm the eternal one, and you belong to the time-bound realm that I've created. From the very beginning, we are to understand that there is a separation between the heavenly and the earthly. Are you with me? This is one of the ways God, illustri God illustrates this in his conversation with Job. 
But there are many ways throughout the scripture that we see there are two realms, God's realm and the human realm. Things get more complicated because it's not just the separation, but we understand because of humanity's disobedience to God, and we visited this last year in our Earth series in Genesis, uh, sin came into the world. And there's another realm we need to be aware of. It's the underworld. Or what Colossians, earlier in chapter 1, calls the dominion of darkness. This is slavery to sin. This is the realm of death. This is the realm of lies, deception, and the demonic. And this has a role participating in corrupting all that was good in God's creation. And so, in that first kind of column there, we're a fair way away from the Lord, aren't we? You tend to understand the wrestles of a guy like Job, where, God, where are you? This is tough. Could you come near? You're my hope. Now, my diagram falls down in the first column a little bit because God is so gracious that he does come near. He actually created by his word and he is present in his word and he visits, dwells, tabernacles in the promise of his word. He doesn't leave his people alone. He continues to speak to them and he has this sort of visitation. But then something amazing happens. Our Redeemer stands on the dust of the earth and we call this the incarnation. Come to the next column with me. Jesus, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider that something to be used for his own advantage, but instead he empties himself, not of his divinity, but of his glory. And he comes, comes to be, comes to stand on the dust of the earth. What Matthew's gospel announces as he comes and he'll be known as Emmanuel, God with us. John's gospel picks this up and John says, hey, the word was in the beginning. That's how God created. The word was with God and the word was God. But this amazing thing has happened. The word has taken on, gray circle, flesh. The spiritual one has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. He's made his living space here where we are. And he came and he brought light and he brought life. He brought what was not here in the shadow of the underworld. He brought the heavenly to us. And as we read in Colossians 1.19, God was truly pleased for his fullness to dwell in us. No, God was, well, he is, maybe. God was pleased for his fullness to dwell in him. So already these prophetic words of Job are ringing true for me, that the Redeemer stands on the dust of the earth. Jesus, in his incarnation, is God shown to us. God says, let me come and introduce myself to you. So much so that Jesus could say to Philip in John 15, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I am God incarnate. I am he. And so we celebrate this rightly at Christmas, do we not? Because this is a crazy miracle of God where the one who is separate, the one who is divine, takes on flesh and dwells and stands on the dust of Nazareth in Israel. And God has come near. Merry Christmas. Philippians 2 and this ancient Christian hymn that it is tells us not only did he come near, but he takes on the nature of a servant and he's obedient to death on a cross. What Jesus does in his coming is he comes and he dies and is risen again. God has not only shown himself, 
But in Jesus' death and resurrection, he tells us about himself. What does God tell us? Well, Romans 5, 8 tells us God demonstrates his love in this, that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God says, I haven't come just to show you what you're missing out on. I've come to show you how I feel about you. I love you. I sacrificially love you. And I will not let you go. Jesus himself in Mark 10, 45 says, I've come as a servant and to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to buy you. I've come to be the redeemer. Just like Job said. I've come to pay a price, to atone, to pay for your sin. The part we really understand with Jesus, but you sing there's so much more. Colossians 1 earlier we didn't read it this morning says he came and in his death he has overcome the dominion of darkness now we don't talk about it a whole lot but the bible does mention it that there is a dominion of darkness there is an underworld there is a demonic realm we know it in its most concrete term death we see that we feel that well jesus overcomes that in his death and resurrection he's gone to that third realm and overcome it he is the victor he, not the lawnmower, the, the, the victory getter, the victor, the winner. He's overcome that realm. He's overcome the dominion of darkness. So he's done this. And this is why I don't like to call it the second coming, because it undermines what Jesus has done at Easter. He departed this life as we know, and as we say in our creed, he died and descended to the dead. At his resurrection, he has come again, and he stands on the dust of the earth. His resurrection is a huge deal. He stands victorious, and once again, he stands on the dust of the earth, and once again, the hope for humanity rises. He has come, he has overcome, and so we say, what next? I'll tell you what next. The what next is the thing that I've got a little bit excited about as I've been preparing this series because I'm thinking, when was the last time I talked to anyone or anyone talked to me about the ascension of Jesus? When I first became a Christian and I read about the ascension, I was like, oh, that's a bummer. The life of the party just left. Didn't want to read Acts because I'm like, oh, he's gone. I'm going to hang around with these other 12 monkeys. But it turns out it's a good ride, so do read Acts. The ascension has blown my mind this year. If you're not familiar with the ascension, this is after Jesus was risen from the grave and ate and showed he was not a ghost, but a living God-man again. He was taken up into heaven. Uh, Luke's gospel records it at the very end. Acts chapter 1 records it. The other gospels do not record the ascension of Jesus. But it's there in the Bible. So Jesus rises. Now, if I'm Jesus, I get just past the cloud line and I'm pulling the coveralls off. This is like you go in, you do a dirty job, you put your overalls on, you do the job, you come home and before your wife yells at you as you come in the door, you take the coveralls off, that gunk is gone and here I am. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus comes, takes on flesh, overcomes the dominion of darkness, renews humanity, and now in perfect humanity does something that's blowing my mind. He takes humanity into the heavenly realm. 
there's a song called Meekness and Majesty. We sing it at uh, eight o'clock sometimes, and it blew my mind last year during the Ephesians series because the lyric is, lift our humanity to the heights of his throne. At the time we were reading through Ephesians, and I think it's chapter two, verse six, talks about how he has blessed us and seated us in the heavenly realms with him. He's taken flesh and put it in the realm of the spiritual. <laughs> I'll tell you, this is going to affect life in the Dirks family household because I'm in negotiations with the family. I've got one on board so far. I want to buy a new ladder. And just like we decorate a Christmas tree once a year, on Ascension Day, we're decorating a ladder. We're having special food. We're giving gifts. That's how I got them. And we're celebrating that the ascension of Jesus is just as big a deal as Christmas. Norway, they have a holiday for I need to move to Norway. <laughs> Fantastic. And so they should, and so should we. I encourage you, uh, make Bunnings Empire even bigger. Get a ladder. The idea that Jesus has taken humanity and seated it in the heights of heaven, in the glory of God, where those two circles were apart, blows my mind. I cannot believe it, and I have to sing the song because I don't have words, and I'm a preacher. Words fail me at this point to express to you what I have felt in reconsidering the ascension and that God would take this human flesh and put it in his house. It's wild. What Jesus has done, Colossians 1.20 tells us that God was reconciling all things to himself in Christ. Do you now see the big deal? It's not just, as big as it is, not just Jesus rescued me from hell for heaven, but God was reconciling all things to himself in Jesus. He was taking separate realms and in his amazing grace, in the God-man Jesus, the one who is fully man and fully God, bringing these things in a way that where they're bound together. So in that little diagram I've drawn with the incarnation and ascension, I almost imagine it like Jesus getting a big steel cable between realms and wrapping it around the two so they can never be fully apart. And his plan is, I will pull these two things together in me. I'm amazed at our Lord Jesus and what he has done. When Jesus stands on the dust of the earth, things get better. Now, what Jesus has done for us, he's the next coming, is he's come in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's called Pentecost, and it's the middle, it's the middle column. In the coming of Jesus at Pentecost, as Joel promised in Joel chapter 2, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, and Acts chapter 2 records, Jesus has poured out his spirit, and what he has done, the one who has bound realms together, has said to us who still live in this earthly realm, who still wrestle with suffering, sin, death, and all these problems, he said, I've got you. I who pull realms together, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put my arms around you by my spirit and I'm going to hold you tight. Where I go, there you will be. How God looks at me, that's how he looks at you. Though you sin, you will be called a saint. Though you die, you will live. Though you are earthly and fleshly, you are heavenly and you are mine because I've got my arms around you. In fact, more than just my arms around you, spirit means breath. I've put my breath inside you. 
We are bound and united in such a way that nothing can ever change that. And this changes life when you live on this earth. When you know the one who has bound heaven and earth together has bound you to himself, never to be separated. Even, next column, by death. You see, there will come a day, should the Lord tarry in returning, where you will die. And some of you have people close to you who have died. What happens when we die? Well, when you die, Jesus doesn't change. And so Jesus could say to a thief on the cross, truly, today, you'll be with me in paradise. I'll still have my arms around you. Now, sometimes people have said, so what happens when we die? We go to sleep and we do some kind of soul sleep until Jesus returns. I think that's a mistake. I don't think the scriptures will sustain that. Instead, Jesus holds you and you are alive to the Lord and participating with the Lord. The beauty of it is, as Peter says in 2 Peter, you just dump the gunk. You take off this earthly tent that has a tear in it there and that weird stain from when the dog peed in at that time and you told the kids not to let the dog come in the tent when you were camping and that moldy bit in the corner. I'm describing your body and mine. You lay it aside, you put it off and you remain alive to the Lord and participating, not sleeping, participating with the Lord just like the martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 6, who are alive to the Lord and participating with the Lord and living in the Job-like hope of wanting the Lord to stand on the dust of the earth as they call out, how long, Lord, how long? How long for what? How long till you return? Because sometimes we make a mistake where we say, it's almost like the same thing between whether I die or Jesus comes back. Not the same event. You're a huge deal. You're a huge deal. I love you. I think you're great. I think you're wonderful. And your death will be a huge deal. But in a cosmic sense, in God's big storyline, it's not quite as big a deal as Jesus returning. God wasn't reconciling all things to himself in you. He was reconciling all things to himself in Jesus. And so you will die. And if you're in Christ, you'll be alive to the Lord in paradise. You will join with all of heaven or all of paradise and all of us saying, how long, Lord Jesus, come back? Because when Jesus comes back, something better than dying and going to heaven happens. Heaven comes to you. Isn't that wild? The one who came, came back, ascended. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm on the throne. I'm like, all right, time's up. Everyone come to me. He'll come to you. Wild, right? Such is his grace. In the end time, with the return of Jesus, he will descend and he will bring heaven and he will raise up the earth to be one heaven and one earth together. Now, you might have a problem right now because you're like, I thought you just said we were dumping the gunk. I don't want this earth back. You won't get this earth back. You'll get a renewed earth back. This broken earth will end, and we'll talk more about how you can't make it last forever in weeks to come. It will end, and it will be renewed. 
And when it's renewed, Jesus will bring heaven and earth together in a way that they never have been before. And the language of revelation will be known to us in our experience that there will be no more separation. Because at the return of Jesus, the Christian hope is finalized where the dwelling place of God will be with his people. The new creation is our hope. Two realms bound together in him come together in him. And so over the next four to five weeks, we have a project together to think more than just the here and now because the best is yet to come. To remember that what is to come is not a consolation. It's not like, well, I'm a Christian, so at least when I die, I get to go to heaven and play a harp with my semi-transparent fingers. No, man, in the new creation, you're not playing a harp. You're playing like a seven-string Ibanez electric guitar with actual, that was a joke, with actual fingers. I need to say that very clearly today. You are not awaiting a semi-transparent thing. You're awaiting a new body, a bodily existence in the new creation, just with no gunk. So we'll be challenged over this next little bit with a new way to think about now and what to expect of what's to come, a new way to dream of what's to come. And if you felt, and I know you have, a little unsettled like Job, striving to make sense of your world, maybe even thinking that with just the right discipline you can make it perfect, you will see anew that Jesus, at his standing on the earth once more, is our true and only and so that is why today's big idea is Jesus is the one hope for everyone and everything. Brace yourself like a person because God is going to show us wonderful things in his word over the next four weeks. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. He truly is our everything. Every time he stands on the dust of the earth, things get better. We thank you that he came. We thank you that in his death and resurrection, he overcame. We thank you that he has taken our fleshly bodies and seated them in the heavenly realms with you. Father, we thank you for his Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in and amongst us, binding us to the God-man forever. And so, Father God, we pray over this period that you would continue to expand our mind it's hard for us, Lord. We work with eyes and ears and hands. We have five senses. And you challenge us to think beyond our five senses and to hear you speak and to trust you and to hope in what we have not yet seen. So, Father God, by your Spirit, will you strengthen us in this hope. May we find hope when we find Jesus. Lord God, my heart is overwhelmed and I don't even know what to pray for our church right now. So I will pray the best thing you've taught me to pray. Come, Lord Jesus.